I find having a social impact business a lot easier than if it wasn't uh, for the very reason that you're always motivated. Your work is, is so much more meaningful. It's an age-old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Morey. I don't think there are rules of engagement on a podcast. Like, it's okay to play favorites, right? Because that's what I'm about to do. When I first met Andre Kesbone, it was love at first Zoom call. Andre is an award-winning documentary filmmaker from my home country of Canada. We connected because she runs Reconciliation Education, an organization that creates and curates a series of bilingual online courses which promote a renewed relationship between Indigenous peoples and Canadians. We cover a lot in this episode, beginning with her groundbreaking and frankly heartbreaking documentary, Third World Canada, a controversial film that made a lot of powerful people pretty uncomfortable. This led to a rewarding journey that culminated in the formation of Reconciliation Education and a partnership with First Nations University. That's all I'm going to say about this episode, except that I'm really grateful to have Andre and her brilliant daughter in my life and that our teams are collaborating to bring her work to a wider audience in Canada and perhaps beyond. For this and so many more personal reasons, I'm delighted to introduce you to my friend, Andre Kesbone, who represents Grow for Good in every possible way. Welcome back to Grow for Good. This is a very special episode, as you heard in the uh, introduction. It's special for us on a lot of levels. And first of all, our guest today is a friend and someone that our parent agency is fortunate to work for. Andre Kuzbon is an award-winning documentary filmmaker who is now the director at Reconciliation Education, an organization that runs a series of bilingual online resources which promote a renewed relationship between Indigenous peoples and Canadians. Andre, so good to see you. Thank you for, so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's an honor, Jed. Thank you. And thank you for all the work you do with, with our company. Thank you. Just getting warmed up, and I can't wait. It's going to be an exciting uh, few years together. So. Andre, before we get into the work that you're doing today, uh, I wanted to dig a little bit into your personal journey a little bit. You know, so much of your story and so much of the story of reconciliation education today is tied to your history as a documentary filmmaker. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about that because I think it's a really big part of the, of the lens through which you see the work that needs to be done. And it's a very powerful medium to communicate a lot of these efforts. So can you tell us a little bit about you know, where you grew up in Canada and then ultimately how you got into filmmaking? Absolutely. Um, I'm a French-Canadian uh, who grew up in, in Ottawa uh, region. My work as a filmmaker, uh, you know, stemmed from my, my passion for writing. And I started uh, making my first film uh, for CBC when I was 21 and uh, I was at the National Film Board um, at the age of 22. So they call me the baby uh, <laughs> of the NFB. So I feel like I grew up in film in, in many ways. My films have been um, for national broadcasts. So in Canada, that would be uh, the CBC and uh, some, of the, some of our French networks, uh, as well as working with the alongside the, the National Film Board of, of Canada, who produced um, a few of my films. And uh, my films focus primarily on social justice issues, children's rights, uh, youth rights, 
I felt that I was well versed in uh, in issues re- relating to, to youth at risk. I, I worked on uh, the Children's Right Bill with with the Senate, and I would often be you know called upon in the media to, to comment on social injustices um, or equity matters around children and youth. So whether that be homeless youth or particularly youth who grew up in in the child welfare system. And so I thought that I was well versed in some of these social issues. So it was a, it was a shocker to me to discover the uh, third world living conditions and also the fourth world and fifth world living conditions hidden uh, from view uh, in Canada uh, around Indigenous uh, nations. So, so that was a big turning point in my life. I believe what you're referencing is uh, the film Third World Canada is mm-hmm. uh, sort of where this bridge occurred. We're going to talk a little bit about the film because honestly, it's, it's one of the most powerful and I should say difficult films that I've, that I've probably ever watched. Mm. Um, but you made, I think if I read this correctly, you made four films in, in addition to doing the work with the CBC along the way. You made four uh, documentary films even before this. Do you feel that Third World Canada is, is really what puts you, I don't want to say puts you on the map, but really codified you as a true documentary filmmaker? Well, interestingly, Jed, and, and that's, a, that's, it was actually my films before that I was, you know, nominated for Gemini and, and received prizes at film festivals and where perhaps I curved out a little place for myself as, as a docu- documentary filmmaker in Canada. And Third World Canada was certainly my own personal uh, growing point, but the title itself was so insulting to my country that it was actually uh, a film that we had to self-distribute and work, you know, directly with Indigenous communities to have it shown, you know. So, so for example, in Canada, we have the um, Assembly of First Nations, so it's, it's a bit of the national body of Indigenous leaders, um, and they worked very hard uh, with us to, um, to rent a hall right across from Parliament Hill uh, and, and have a premiere and have it shown there. And it was, it was a real shocker to, to Canada. We had some prominent politicians there and, and the youth from, from the community flew down uh, to be part of that screening. But if it wasn't for the support of Indigenous peoples, Third World Canada would have been tucked away because the film was insulting because it, it was really about what was wrong with Canada as opposed to the usual narrative, which is what is wrong with Indigenous peoples, which is a very comfortable story to tell. And so this was uh, one of those films where, um, I mean, I was even told to not release the film, that it would put my reputation and career uh, and that I would never recover career wise from from a film like that. And this is from some really high level political uh, folks that discouraged me from from coming out with that film. So in a way, it was a bit of a leap um, for me because I had to put behind my career and my own uh, journey as a filmmaker and really focus on the most important thing, which is to bring awareness and education to, um, to Canada towards moving the country to a, a better place. So, so that became um, part of the sacrifice in a way um, that I made. And, and part of that was to actually, <laughs> I made a commitment to not make films for 10 years after that film so that I could learn 
directly from Indigenous people and, and really honor that film. Because if you're going to come out with such a, a strong um, statement, you can't just be off making another film a year later. So, um, and as well, it, it, it prevented anybody from saying my career would be at risk because I was already choosing a mini little 10 uh, year retirement anyway. So that way I had nothing to lose in a way. Andre, the, I, I want to get into, obviously, you know, Grow for Good is a uh, primarily um, a business show about organizations that are doing good in the world. But I was so, I want to say, wrecked by your film, but in a thoughtful way, not in a, a despondent and, and I didn't feel despair necessarily. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. I felt energized to learn more, do more. and. It came from this deep understanding of you spending the time to be accepted enough to put forward a very authentic and very difficult narrative. So I do want to spend a little bit more time on the film because I think it's such an important inflection point that people should understand. And if we can encourage people to look at clips of the film, to even see the film, to try and find it. I think that's important as well. So in the backstory here is that you were able to gain acceptance and admittance to tell the story of a particular family at Kitchen. Is it Kitchen Amexa in Anewag? Is that correct? Very close, Jed. That's very good. It took me a whole plane ride to learn how to pronounce it. <laughs> it's how do we kit- say it? Kitchen Amexib in Anewag. Okay, so this is a territory, indigenous territory in northern Ontario, correct? Mm-hmm. That was sort of forgotten. I mean, for lack of a better word, it was just sort of there and forgotten. And as long as people couldn't see it, they weren't impacted by it. Tell us the story of this particular people and the territory and tell us about your film. Mm. So Third World Canada was a documentary that was made um, with the community. So, in fact, they have uh, legal rights over the film at any time that they feel it's time to kind of pause the film. They can uh, they can request that. And they also were my teachers in the process. Um, and so part of the film was also about me learning about my own history as a settler and understanding the original uh, treaties, which were supposed to be uh, about living together, uh, sharing resources, sharing solutions, uh, living uh, side by side in coexistence. And that's certainly how Canada's uh, story be- before it became Canada. That was that was our, our story. And with time, um, we broke those treaties and essentially took all of the resources and all of the land. And so the nation uh, of Kitchenumik Sibininuig, or KI for short, was forced to live on this tiny little pocket of land. So one of the things that the U.S. does a lot better than Canada is that you can fit all of the reserves in Canada on one single tribal nation in the U.S. So that was, you know, a surprise to find out just how little land Indigenous people have in, in one of the largest uh, country in the world. And so this nation lives in the boreal forest. It's a fly-in community. Um, it costs more money than when I went from Canada to um, Alice Spring, uh, Australia, in terms of, of flight cost. It, it's, it's easier for me to go to Australia than, than to go uh, visit KI. So they're incredibly isolated. The nation um, 
were essentially uh, starved into signing uh, agreements with Canada. It, it was it was understood in the translation that it was about sharing resources and a, and a nation to nation relationship. But in fact, what the document uh, really was in English was about. Um, basically taking taking the land so so this nation today lives in uh, extreme poverty they have over 200 people on the wait list for housing some homes um, struggle with drinking waters and and this community where social workers you know so the first nation social workers brought me into was actually the richest in that that territory of 30 nations so we really went to the granddaddy of them all to to make this film um, there are other nations that are in fifth world um, living conditions. So that's that's a point that we had to make twice in the film because it, it gets missed by by the reader in terms of the shock of the, the living uh, conditions in, in a country like Canada. And so the film um, looks at the impact of one suicide that leaves behind eight brothers and children who are impacted by suicide and how a community with 200 people on the wait list is is trying to struggle with with where do we house them how do we care for them how do we love them how do we give them the future that they deserve and so from you know one nation one family and one little boy really um who's uh who's uh 5 years old at at the time of filming we start to see uh firsthand those unjust uh colonial policies you know, in Canada, we often believe that that we're not uh, struggling with racism or that we're such a fighter for human rights. And so it's a real shocker for us when we watch this film to realize, wow, we have a long way to go in, in our own backyard. Uh, and so so the film was that eye opener. And I'm, I'm glad that you feel the hope because what you discover is what a beautiful, resilient people the nation is. And what's broken is perhaps the policies and, and, and not so much the people. And so that's something that we can all fix, that we can all get behind. We can actually, we can fix policies. We, we can do better. We can honor, um, those, uh, those living treaties. And so the, the hope of the film is that people have this awakening when they see the film and realize, yeah, let's roll up our sleeves. We can all play our part, whether it's in the workplace or in the education system. And also the, the beauty of the people comes through. Uh, years later, we, we had some reconciliation trips where we actually brought Canadians to be hosted in the families. And so we literally had, would have film screenings in the community, which was one of our most uh, important uh, screenings of the film. And so people would be hosted by the community and learn directly from the community about reconciliation and create ties and friendships that... Um, you know, we're long lasting. So those were, were also some of the hopeful things. But but clearly the, the message was how important it is to educate and to raise awareness about the role that we can all play in in, uh, in changing this, this narrative that is in our country here in Canada. There were so many parts of that film that stuck with me. One was the love, the struggle and the resilience on display from the children's aunt. She was just so perfectly human and rational, but loving about the, the entire situation. Somebody who just has the most extraordinary circumstances thrust upon her in so many ways from colonialism to the immediate family tragedy. 
and how she dealt with that with, you know, with the kids first, even some of the difficult decisions that she had to make. And then the kids themselves, if you don't love these kids watching this film and realize they're just kids, they're the same as kids everywhere, but the, their, their worldview will be so different than, than everyone else's because of just the extreme circumstances that they're in. I wanted to spend some time on that film. I know, again, this is a, a business podcast, but it's one of those things where the business of your business is brought so much more to the forefront and is made so much more powerful by your brilliance as a filmmaker and the, not just the artistry, but the very delicate empathic touch that you had in making that it's not patronizing like i said it's devastating you have you did not patronize anybody in that film there's none of the the mystical cloak that usually overhangs a lot of uh, treatments about indigenous peoples it is i thought just perfect just beautiful and perfect so i this is my opportunity to thank you first of all for doing it for just doing that work but then staying with it is really so above and beyond so let let's pivot with that then and talk about the movement of canada because i think this might actually be interesting and different to an american audience which is you know our primary audience here in that there is an effort in Canada uh, called Truth and Reconciliation, which is sort of the, the genesis of, of the organization, but something that we need to understand to kind of reconcile our history. It's not the only country to do this. I know that South Africa has a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I, th I believe New Zealand does as well. Uh, but Canada came into that movement. Can you explain exactly what this commission or what the, the act and the movement is in Canada? Yeah. So the Truth and Reconciliation, you know, um, as a Canadian I would love to tell you the story that through our own growth and maturity as, as, as a young country, we learned from our mistakes and we realized that we can do better. Um, and we need to honor our, our treaty partner, uh, indigenous people, which is, you know, what this country was, was built upon. But unfortunately, this is not a movement that was began, uh, by Canadian people, although now it is being, uh, embraced by many and, and many are joining the reconciliation uh, movement and, and initiatives in the country. The movement began from uh, the courage and resilience and vision of Indigenous people who had survived residential schools. So very similar experience in the, in the U.S. It's called the boarding school system, where uh, the, the survivors of those schools won the largest civil action uh, suit in, in, in the world. And so they brought the country uh, to court to face the injustice and and to begin this reconciliation process. So part of that settlement was about having um, a, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as we've seen in South Africa and Guatemala and Australia. Uh, and so and so that's really where it began was from the survivors of those residential schools. Uh, and the impacts of that. And, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission listened to the survivors for about uh, seven years throughout the country. And from that stemmed some recommendations about how to move forward. And a large part of them relate to the education, uh, the true history of Canada. So we've seen as part of these reconciliation efforts, for example, our Museum of Histories have changed the narrative that you know, settlers came upon lands that were 
not occupied um, and and settled here in 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 good ways. And and so we 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 look at the history of Canada not just from uh, settlers arriving, but the amazing uh, innovations and brilliance and sophisticated political systems that lived here and, in fact, inspired the U.S. and, and Canada uh, in their own um, in their own process. And so we're now going a lot deeper and realizing, you know, what what was here, what is here, and the future um, of reconciliation is is about building a, a better, more just uh, society. Andre, can I pull you back to one particular point? Because I actually mm. think that listeners would benefit from a, a nuance of the way you phrase something. When you talk about the survivors of the schools, if you don't know anything about the residential school system here at, or, or in the U.S. or in Canada, that might sound like an odd way to phrase it. And it's not. Absolutely. Can you just unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in Canada stem from uh, the survivors of the residential schools bringing to justice, so to the courtrooms, what actually happened in those residential schools. So part of the truth part before we get to reconciliation is that truth-telling piece. Part of that movement was educating um, the whole country, really, uh, in the world as to what actually took place in Canada. The residential school system sounds like an education project, um, and um, unfortunately it wasn't because most of the graduates came out with a, a grade two, grade three education level. It was an initiative our country, knowing that it couldn't win a war if it actually went to war with Indigenous people, you know, had to come up with other ways to, to colonize. And, and essentially, it was a bit of a land grab, to, to say the least. And so part of the residential schools was was about forcing children out of their homes. So police officers would show up in planes or buses um, and carted off, like literally some communities Every child over the age of four was was stolen from the community, sometimes brought into another province, would lose their language, their ability to return home, uh, to reconnect with their family. And essentially what, what happened was you had now a community of heartbroken parents. So if you could imagine a community that puts, you know, uh, their worldview is, is a child has as much value as an adult, which is... A, a very unusual concept. So when you take away all of the children in a community or in a nation that honors children so much, and you break the hearts of parents and grandparents and aunties and uncles, and you can literally not hear a single child in the community except a few that were hidden in the bush by some very fast parents, you you break a people, uh, and then it doesn't really matter what happened after that. So so the nations were were heartbroken, and this system went on for 160 years. So so it wasn't like a four year uh, uh, bad chapter in our history book. This was systemic. It went on, um, and it was meant to um, remove, um, as it said at the time, the Indian in the child, and to essentially not only whitewash Indigenous children, but to remove their identity. And why is their identity important? Well, inherently, Indigenous people have rights to the land. And so part of solving the problem of building a country uh, upon um, broken treaties was, you know, what, what do you do moving forward and what do you do with all the lands? So that was part of the vision of, of these schools was to to decimate a people. And, and it just speaks to the amazing... Um, 
innovative and uh, creative survival uh, and and the spirit of those nations because um, 160 years later, they, they never succeeded. So it's time now for Canada to say, let's come up with a better dream and let's come up with a better country. So that's what the truth and reconciliation is about, is telling that truth and moving forward in, in a very hopeful way. So in the U.S., there's an organization, um, I think it's called Facing History. It's that truth piece that you're talking about. It's about, okay, how can we, uh, how can we go back and honestly look at our history and begin to own some of our actions within the context of what's happened to marginalized peoples in this country? There is no real reconciliation effort. The other half of that equation in the U.S. does not exist. In Canada, let's get into the work of your organization where you're really boots on the ground, for lack of a, a better metaphor, in, in actually connecting the truth piece to the reconciliation piece and bringing people, businesses, individuals, employees of companies, just as many people as you can get into this process. Can you tell us about how reconciliation education, your organization is structured and what the purpose and mission is? And then tell us a little bit about the journey, how you go about bridging this gap. Mm -hmm. So the organization Reconciliation Education um, is, is a joint effort. It's a partnership with the First Nations University of Canada, which is the oldest Indigenous university in the country. And they have uh, been holding that space for, for so long for so many of us. And so they had already put together uh, a, a fairly extensive reconciliation certificate. And so the work that had begun with the Film Third World Canada in terms of, of creating an education week-long immersive experience for the classroom and the education sector bridged with First Nations University. And so not only were we able to transform this resource uh, under the guidance and leadership of First Nations University, but to also now bring it to the workplace. And as well, the work solidified, you know, I had mentioned earlier that I'd made a 10-year commitment to not make films. Well, now it was, you know, 10 years was up. And with, um, you know, with this relationship with First Nations University, we had to play some catch-up. So I wanted to make four short films. And so this reconciliation film series was also part of that work. This is so, four seasons? Mm -hmm. So four seasons of reconciliation was uh, a four-part film series that brought together Indigenous creators and, um, and the resource to create uh, a deeper understanding. And so as a companion piece to Third World of Canada, other films were created. So under the leadership of First Nations University, one film called Economic Reconciliation honored the calls to action that relate to the, to the initiatives intended for the workplace. And so then that film morphed into an online course uh, for the workplace. And it's really taken um, the financial sector by storm in some way, because now there was a tool that could be brought inside a workplace that could do that truth-telling piece within a workplace setting. Um, 
And so it's been, it's been an absolutely amazing journey. And, and I really feel that that first plane ride in the community of Kitchenamakes, the Beninawag, and, and the, the friendship and the trust, uh, and the leadership of that community investing in teaching, you know, this, this, this white filmmaker, uh, who came along from down south. And, and I hope that, you know, it does the, the community and the nation proud in terms of that investment in, in my own education that, that now with First Nations University of Canada, we can bring this into the workplace. Can you tell us a bit about First Nations University? Because I actually don't know much about their structure. I know it broadly as a university. Is it fair to, to kind of align it with what we would um, like historically black colleges in the United States? Is it the same type of framework? Can non-Indigenous folks apply uh, go to the school? Can they take classes there, audit classes there? Like, how does, how does the, the university fit within the greater education structure of Canada? Mm-hmm. So First Nations University of Canada is, is located right in the heart of the country and in the prairies in Saskatchewan in Regina. It's the, um, also happens to be the province that closed the last residential school in 1996. 1996? Yes, that was our last residential school. And so that province has a lot of, uh, real champions and folks that have been looking for solutions uh, against uh, colonization. So part of that solution has been about having their own education center. And so they have an Indigenous worldview and uh, even ceremonies take place on campus, you know, pipe ceremonies and um, elders and uh, Indigenous languages play a large influence in the university, but the university is open to all learners. So you have a real, um, you have a lot of folks who are coming from other countries, other races who feel very comfortable studying there. And you have a lot of um, white Canadians as well who are studying there. So there's a mix of international students, local Indigenous students. I, I'm proud to say my, my own daughter is, is there studying business and finance. So it's the same curriculum in many ways that, that you would have in a, in a business degree, uh, let's say in her, in her case or, or social work or communications. But many of, of the perspectives and the indigenous worldview is infused in the content. So it's a, it's a very unique place. They also have, uh, continuing education and professional development, uh, as well. So, so it's, uh, it's a real honor. It, it could be similar to some of the black colleges. There's also some indigenous, uh, universities and, and colleges in the USA. Uh, and we see them, you know, you know, for example, in New Zealand, there's, uh, there's almost a sister university in some ways to First Nations University. So, so there are other places around the world that have that, uh, indigenous led and indigenous, the leadership is indigenous. Uh, and so that makes a, a big, a big difference as well in the learning. Is it okay for us to talk about how much, uh, my team loves, uh, your daughter? <laughs> is that okay to say on a podcast? That's all right, right? We could do that. Yeah. So, uh, getting back into, um, some of the, the, uh, or the influence over the corporate structure that your courses can have. You know, we often talk about doing the work to implement change when we speak to organizations and companies that are purpose driven. And when your work involves corporations, there's always a fear that there's someone on the other side that's just sort of checking a box for liability purposes or, you know, feeling the pressure to submit some sort of regulatory document that covers them. Like in sustainability, we often talk about trying to avoid greenwashing and injustice work. We, we talk about a great deal of performative lip service. 
that occurs, uh, particularly now in the height of uh, what we'll call just this post-George Floyd era, where we're talking about a lot of DEI, a lot of justice work that's trying to be kind of jammed into corporate cultures. And then there are some com- some organizations that are trying to do this work in a really thoughtful way. Can you give us an example of a company that you've worked with that is really, quote, doing the work, that is doing this in a thoughtful manner and engaging with RecEd in a meaningful way? Hmm. Well, so far, we, we've had uh, the honor of working um, with two of, of, of the largest banks in the country. So in our country, we, have, we call them the five big banks. And so two out of the five big banks is always a, a, a pretty good impact uh, in terms of reaching a large number of, of people. Um, so we've seen companies like, you know, the Royal Bank of Canada, uh, the Bank of Montreal, um, companies like Deloitte, and they've brought this course as part of the mandatory training and have also gone a step further and, and created initiatives as well around it. So for example, Deloitte, has a reconciliation action plan, uh, very much inspired actually by the private sector in Australia. So we have companies in Australia that um, have reconciliation action plans with some real measurable uh, markers, whether it's around the diversity in, in at the boardroom, um, uh, procurement, um, you know, vendor relationships, uh, or, um, you know, Qantas, for example, will have a week where they uh, also honor um, Indigenous authors and films and, you know, the magazine stories are, are covering that. And, and they'll also have Indigenous artists literally paint uh, airplanes. Um, and when I had the chance to meet with Reconciliation Australia, I was, I was really surprised by that. It gave me a sneak peek of what might be coming in Canada in a few years. Do you help them build this framework, Andre? Or, or are these things that once they've gone through some of the education that you're helping put together for them, they're taking this and, and they're, they're going with it on their own? Or do you stay involved in the process? Do you, do you help like, kind of push them off the ledge a little bit? How does that work with, with your organization? Well, we, we do our best um, to have a relational approach, uh, even though we have an online resource. And so part of that relational approach is, is not just shipping them a, a pair of shoes like Amazon and then saying, I, I hope you like green and size seven. Um, <laughs> but really uh, being involved with them. So we look at four seasons of reconciliation as something, you know, every season, can we do a little bit more than the last one around reconciliation? So we, are connected to Indigenous uh, leaders and and folks in in DEI across the country. And so we've heard some stories that work, some that don't work, different examples. So we help them um, if they reach out to us. Uh, It's part of the work that we do. It's part of our mandate. So whether that's, you know, sometimes I'll do presentation to their board of directors around Indigenous representation at the executive level or procurement of Indigenous companies and, and policies. Uh, and sometimes it's just sharing stories of, of, of different things that have worked to, to highlight, uh, works in reconciliation. So yeah, we're always very honored when, when we do participate in that work and, and we'll connect them to, uh, indigenous, um, business leaders from across the country and indigenous organizations. So playing a bit of a connector role in, in some ways, um, and really encouraging them to, to see this, this learning as, as a first step along the way. And, um, you know, what we aim to do with the resources is, is, um, you know, close that gap where 
people who don't know they need to know are now finally learning about the need to know. And once people have that awakening, and especially if you can reach, uh, you know, their, their intellect and, and their spirit and their hearts, it just transforms them into understanding, wow, I, I actually want to learn more about this. I, I want to, I want to take the next step. Um, but often, um, sometimes it's always the people who've already drank the Kool-Aid who show up at events, um, whether it be in anti-racism or, or diversity, uh, or in Canada's case, you know, reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. They usually look around the room and go, well, where's the people who need to know about this? So that's the, the, the small, uh, but hopefully critical piece that, that the course can play in an organization. And also equalize the learning that everybody's missed in their education journey. Because, of course, Canadians have not learned this in school. And we're seeing a huge transformation in the education system. But certainly, there's uh, this is one step of, of many. But without that learning, whenever you have an initiative, um, whether it's bringing a clean drinking water uh, project um, to, to a, a nation... Uh, not having done that identity work as a, as a settler, for example, or understanding the deeper issues sometimes can make that work very meaningless and very much feel like a checkbox when, when in fact it could be, uh, relational and, and meaningful. So, so I think that's an important first step. And, and yeah, we're, we, we love to, to be part of, of that work that is already underway in, in many places. You just reminded me of a, a- conversation we had with a, another amazing woman named Mega Desai, who runs a foundation that um, empowers women in United States, but also India. And the Desai Foundation will go into these communities. And she had a similar journey where she recognized uh, through the story of a very remote tribal region in India, where an organization helicoptered in and gave them potable water and then flew right out. And there, when they went back and, and interviewed some of the members of the community, they actually discovered that the women of the community, because a very patriarchal society there, the women in the community were upset with that because part of their experience and identity and escape was the long journey to walk and get water. And now that that was eliminated, it was creating very different social pressures that were actually difficult for the women of, of that particular tribal region to, to handle. If you don't go there, if you don't do the work, if you don't have the experience, if you don't have the framework and the lens that you have, for example, by doing that work, it's very difficult to just helicopter in with these one solution fits all type projects. So I appreciate what you're saying about that. Let's talk about the first step of a company getting involved with you. A company approaches you and says, we want to do this. We want to be involved. How do, how do we start? What do we do? What does that process look like? Or as well, you would say, what does that process look like? <laughs> uh, yeah, the first step is, is pretty simple. You know, we, we have a phone call. We, we find out uh, what the company's needs are and if this is a fit for them. Because we also, of course, don't want to be part of just a checkbox initiative and have this course sit on a shelf or it not actually meeting their needs. So we, we want to evaluate with them. Um, and then we provide them with uh, a trial so they can, they can review the course uh, and see if it's a fit for the company. 
And then we can provide them with a course for their own learning management system internally. So, so a course that is housed within their own um, technical structures, or they can send us uh, their list of employees and they can start learning. At the end of the learning, there's a certificate of completion provided by First Nations University of Canada. It's LinkedIn compatible. So a lot of folks like to celebrate that first that first step in, in their learning journey on, on their education page and, and have that uh, online uh, conversation. And then we support their learners technically as well as provide usage report to the company and, and start working with the, their HR team to, um, to measure the impact and, and measure the success uh, in their workplace. And, and then what other initiatives that they, they might like to see stem from that. There's also a 20-hour bonus library of ongoing learning offered to the learner for a year and also to the company. So perhaps they want to celebrate, um, you know, in Canada, we have, we honor treaties in, in Ontario, for example. Well, that would be a good time to share stories of how other companies are doing that and, and some of the um, sound bites and, and video clips that we have that relate to treaties that they can now share with their employees. So we help them have multimedia newsletters and, and, um, and information that they can provide. And we also help them if they want to host a film screening and, and actually learn about um, Indigenous uh, business from, from Indigenous leaders. So some of the speaker series uh, with the films are, are also provided to the companies. As, as we sort of get to the tail end of the conversation, I want to talk to you just a little bit about running a, a purpose-driven organization as you do, because it is different. You know, so much of it is the same, right? As running any type of company, you have the same type of concerns. There's budget and bandwidth and uh, insurance and rent and all those just type of, you know, the things that we all kind of have to go through. And then there's the thing that gets you out of bed every day and kind of has a, a, a higher calling. For entrepreneurs looking to carve out this journey, one that is not straightforward, one that does not have a, I went to business school, I saw the business model, I learned the ropes, I do it this way kind of thing. What kind of advice would you give to an entrepreneur that wants to get into social entrepreneurship, something that might have been unexpected that you had to learn along the way? Hmm. Well, in every sector, whenever I get a question like that, whether it's it's a nursing and they say, you know, what what... I always invite that sector and in, in your question, the business sector, the entrepreneur sector, learn from indigenous peoples, you know, period. Because when it comes, for example, to uh, business and entrepreneurship, they have a long, amazing history uh, and some really fascinating and uh, proven systems of, of doing business that I think is, is going to be a lot more relevant as well as, as, as we look for, um, smarter ways of, of doing business. So, so I always invite folks, you know, first go learn from indigenous business models. It will take your brain for a bit of a, of an adventure and it will help you come back to your own business and see it from a different perspective. I find having a social impact business a lot easier than if it wasn't uh, for the very reason that you're always motivated. 
your work is, is so much more meaningful. So instead of getting hung up on, say, technology solutions or which insurance uh, policy should we get, there's you're brought into much higher circles and you're introduced to very high caliber people who, who teach you and lead you along the way because they want to see your initiative be successful. And so your conversations are... Are, are much wider, um, your networks are, are wider as well. And it forces you to grow and, and grow up very fast. So it forces you to mature at a higher speed than if you didn't have a, a social uh, model. And it also helps because you have different measures of success, you know, and they're not all financial, even though that's important for the sustainability. And it also gives you a lot of flexibility, you know, because we have a social model, we're able to try out different things and we're able to sometimes offer things for free that, you know, you couldn't do if you didn't have that a social model and find creative ways to pay for, um, for some of those initiatives, you know, or in the case of, um, you know, our, some of our proceeds go to, uh, First Nations University scholarships. And, and so those are, the kinds of initiatives that keep you going. I mean, a lot of businesses uh, do go bankrupt, do shut down fairly fast, or they get, they're very successful and they get bought up very fast. And, and, and now you have to start a new one. When you have a social impact business, you're always driven to a higher purpose. And, and I think you expect yourself to do so much more, so much more high caliber, um, because, because there are people who, who depend on you to, to bring a, a higher message. So in some ways, I, I find it so much easier. I, I think I'd have a really hard time not running this kind of model, even though, of course, it comes with many, many challenges, but they're all worthwhile, I find. My last question for you. Do you miss being behind the camera? <laughs> oh, I do miss being behind the camera. Yes. Um, we've had the pleasure, though, with this uh, online course. Of course, we've, we've created a lot of content to, to fit in there and a lot of diverse content. And we filmed in, uh, in many indigenous communities, um, uh, with this initiative. So, so we've been, we've been very lucky to still be behind the camera. You're able to get your fix. I, I haven't got my fix, although I did get, uh, the honor of, of creating, uh, with indigenous artists, the commercial for First Nations University, which is airing on TV right, right now. Right. So it's uh, a 60 second, uh, jolt, um, that, uh, gave us, uh, that fix. But I do have some films in, in development in, in the background. So hopefully, uh, I always said my last film would be short and I would be 85. So, um, so luckily, I, I still have a few decades of, of filmmaking in me. On a final note, just before you tell us how people can get in touch with you and uh, anything else you'd like them to know, our relationship personally uh, and your organization with our company uh, is pivotal. It means the absolute world to us. There isn't a person on our team that doesn't know that this is where we want to live, that this is where our hearts are. A lot of it, as you know, comes from our personal backstory at this company and, and, you know, how we're positioned and, you know, just something that we're very close to. But most of it for the team has been just working with you and your daughter. You're an extraordinary, extraordinary duo. I wish you so much success. I'm so grateful to be a part of it and to work for you. It's hard to put it into words. So it's an honor to have you on this show. And thank you for trusting us to to work alongside your efforts. And I hope we do some some really great things together. And with that out of the way, 
how can people get in touch with you? And is there anything else you'd like people to know? Well, you know, first of all, I, I do want to take a moment, um, you know, to, to honor uh, the Mori creative team, because it's just one of those examples that I was speaking of earlier, that when you do have a higher mission, um, high caliber people come into your life um, and, and folks like, like your company and the values that you uphold, you know, have trickled down everywhere in your company and are so, uh, so part of the fabric that to us it's been um it's been a, a real honor working with with your company as well and and your your connection to uh making an impact socially it's it's not just um a thing you do on the side it's in every uh process which i find uh amazing so i'm i'm learning so much from your team on how to have a social impact from from the work that you do so so you inspire us immensely we're so lucky to have you and and We've had some interest from, from U.S. companies. And, you know, I just know that we're in good company with you advising us, uh, and, and having your, um, your capacity, uh, you know, fueling us, uh, forward in, in these next few years. So I can't wait to see, uh, <laughs> the good that we can, that we can do together. So that's a real honor. People can get in touch with us. It's, it's easy, uh, reconciliationeducation.ca. In Canada, it's not .com, it's .ca. And so once you, you remember that, we're, we're very easy to find and, and you can contact us there and, and learn about our work. And, and yeah, and I, I invite also for folks to, to learn from their local uh, tribes and look for Indigenous leaders around you in, in your various sectors. Uh, once you bring uh, Indigenous people into your circle, and hopefully that's a, that's a give and take, uh, and not just a take take your life will be will be so much better for it your business will be better for it indigenous peoples whether in the US or Canada have so much to offer uh and we have so much to learn uh from uh for the future you know not not just for uh the reparations of the past so so i really encourage folks to to learn uh through reconciliation education um as well as from your your local tribes and, and nations in your neighborhood and if you don't know who they are or where they are just that is an amazing uh learning journey Andre, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for the time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, real honor, Chad. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do. Well, if you want to learn more about Andre's story and reconciliation education, we're going to link some things in the show notes. As always, if uh, you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, reach out as well. Like us, rate us, review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. would also encourage you to download our social justice podcast, Newsbeat. A lot of great stuff there, including an episode that's upcoming on Indigenous struggles in the United States. That is all for now. We'll see you on the next episode of Grow for Good. The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.